Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you found out tomorrow that God was dead, would your life be any different? Someone asked me this question this last week and kind of struck me. What would my life be like if God were dead? If God were dead, would my life be any different than it is today? Well, there's some little things that might be different. You know, I'd probably stop going to church on Sunday. I'd probably not be praying very much. In particular, I'd be out of a job. What would be different? Because although we can identify a few little things, if, if we don't see a big difference, imagining our life without God, that God were dead, then maybe we need some self-evaluation going on here. In fact, this was the very same question that Jesus asked the Emmaus disciples. As they were walking along the road back from Jerusalem and Jesus had died, as far as they know, he's never coming back. They were walking down their road with their heads hanging low, thinking, basically, God is dead. Their hopes are dashed. And there Jesus appears, doesn't show himself to them at first, and he says, why are you sad and what are you talking about? And they launch into this whole thing about Jesus and how great it was that he had come to earth and done all these things. And then he, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, but now he's dead. In Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, who tells that Emmaus stories, he is building up the tension for us to think about this. What is our hope? As he goes into the book of Acts and starts to unfold this new church, this new movement, this new birth of what God is doing in the world since the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's showing us how the resurrection of Jesus has changed things dramatically. That there is a difference the world we knew before Jesus compared to the world we imagine after Jesus has changed. Things are not as they once were. And this is impacting the community of the Jews. It's impacting the apostles. And now it's reaching out to impact the Gentiles who are turning from their ways that they were once going and now are turning to the Lord. We've been looking in the series in Acts at key words that is describing this difference, including witness, including proclamation, including now repentance. It was Peter who later on wrote a letter to a bunch of Christians scattered throughout the world in which he said, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that's the hope the Emmaus disciples were missing, the living hope that Jesus has risen, and now 
things are different. So what's the difference? We look at this in our text from Acts 11, how Peter is trying to convince this crowd of Jews in Jerusalem that things are different. So he retells this story. You can tell in Peter already things are different. Peter was the one who at first said, Not so, Lord, I could never go in and eat with those Gentiles. It's forbidden. Who is now convincing the leaders in Jerusalem that they too should welcome the Gentiles. This is a huge and dramatic shift in how God is going out into the world compared to how he was bringing the world to himself in the Old Testament. Now his spirit is going out from the temple, out into the communities, and out into the world to reach as many as can be reached. As he comes to the end of the story, which we we revisited that story last week, he comes toward the end and says, how could I withstand what God was doing? How could I stand in God's way? Now, there were plenty of times when Peter did stand in God's way. In fact, at one point, Jesus says, I need to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, that could never happen. God would never let that happen. We're not going to let that happen to you. And Jesus had to call out Satan, who was working through Peter, trying to keep him from his mission, to show that Jesus had a plan. And his way and God's way was to go through death and into resurrection, and that every one of us now has to go through that same experience, that conversion of the heart that is like dying to our old self and learning to become the new self, repentance. He says, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The basic meaning of the word repentance is, has two senses, one in the Old Testament, another in the New Testament. There's two images. Both basically tell us the same thing. In the Old Testament, repentance was pictured as a path. So the word for repentance meant to turn, to turn around, to stop going the way you were going and the path you were going on and go on a different path, the road less traveled. To turn around and go a different way. That's the Old Testament picture. And then in the New Testament Greek, the picture is of not a path, but of your mind. And in the New Testament, the word metanoia means to change your mindset, to change your thinking, to change from where you are intent on going in your head, not with your feet, but in your mind, to where you're now headed. Both of them have to do with direction. In the Old Testament, it's your way of life, and in the New Testament, it's your way of thinking. But both work together. You can see how the way that you're headed, the path that you're going on, is going to begin by what you're thinking, where your mind is, what you're focused on, where you're imagining yourself going. So God comes. And he shows us these two paths. 
In fact, that's exactly what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus brought this idea in front of us. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So you have Jesus here laying out that Old Testament view of two paths. One which leads to destruction and one which leads to life. Only the one which leads to life is hard to find. The gate is hard to find and the path is difficult to journey. It's not easy. The broad path that leads to destruction is a whole different story. That's the one we're naturally on. By nature, we're already pre-programmed in our flesh to be on that path, the easy path, the path that is going to be much more inviting, is going to appeal to us much more quickly for instant gratification. But ultimately, in the end, Jesus said, it leads to more and more destruction. Jesus is teaching the heart and life of a Christian, which comes out of the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs is where this whole idea begins. Wisdom. Now, I know our sermon today is about repentance, but repentance in the Old Testament really begins with wisdom. The book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord, repentance, is the beginning of wisdom. And it describes these two women which are trying to get your attention. The one woman is wisdom. And Lady Wisdom is calling out for you. She wants you to listen. She's standing in the gate of the city trying to influence and get people to listen who are coming in, who are congregating, who are debating things, politics, life, personal matters. And then you have the other lady, Lady Folly. She represents foolishness. She's also calling out. She's crying out. She's wandering through the city getting people's attention much more quickly and easily than Lady Wisdom. So listen to what it says in the book of Proverbs. Lady Wisdom is standing in her house and she's looking out. And she says, I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding. He was passing along the street near the corner and he took the path to her house. You know who her house is referring to? In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, and there was a woman who met him there. She was wearing the dress of a harlot, and she had a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would never stay at home, At times she was outside, at times she was in the open square, she was lurking in every corner. So here is the book of Proverbs describing these two women calling out, one representing wisdom, one representing foolishness. And she ends by saying, her house is the way to destruction and the chambers of shale. 
That's the broad and easy path. And it's so appealing. It's so in your face. It's calling out and getting your attention so easily all the time that it's hard to hear the other voice. It's hard to know what Lady Wisdom is saying. So we go on in chapter 8, where finally Lady Wisdom now speaks. And she says, it says, Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill, beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out in the gates, at the entrance of the city, where everything is converging and people are passing by. And she says, To you, O men, I call, and my voice to the sons of men. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things, for my mouth will speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting. From the beginning, before there was ever an earth, there were no depths, and I was brought forth. And when there were no foundations with water, I was there. Sounds like it's describing God himself before the foundations of the earth. And then it says that wisdom, Lady Wisdom, was involved in laying out the way that this world is supposed to be. That there is a way that this world is supposed to be. We long for it. When we get hurt, we know it's not the right way. When things are getting destroyed, when we're feeling guilty, when we're going through grief, All of this is describing that something's gone array. And so she says, Now therefore listen, listen, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul, and all those who hate me love death. So we go back to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Enter by the narrow gate. Who was it that was really there before the foundation of the world and that who is still crying out as Jesus speaks those words? Wisdom itself has come to our world and has been incarnate in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And he says, enter by the narrow gate. It's difficult to find and it's difficult to travel, but it will pay off. Now, this doesn't mean that we never sin. Repentance does not mean that you stop doing a particular sin and never ever do it again. A lot of people might actually think that, that, well, pastor must be meaning that I can never ever do this thing again, so I've got to commit my way to the Lord, 
pray to the Lord, promise to the Lord. And if I can't commit to that, then what's the point? That is not what repentance is. Repentance is not dealing with the issue of outward behavior. Outward behavior is going to happen. What repentance is dealing with is the direction of the heart. Not the sins of the flesh. The flesh will always be with you. It will always plague you. You will never be rid of it until the day you die and are delivered to heaven. But what it's talking about is the direction inwardly of the heart. That's why it's so difficult to define exactly what repentance is and to determine when a person is actually repentant. That's actually a hard thing that takes a lot of prayer and time and wisdom. But if you're dealing in terms of that prayer and time and wisdom, then the direction is correct. You're looking to the Lord. So everyone who's hearing the sermon now is thinking about their own personal struggles and guilt, and your heart is turning to the Lord saying, I need help, then that is repentance. It's the path. The path to life, and the path to life is Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And this is what gives us life. It does not deliver us from the devil forever. It does not deliver us from our sinful flesh forever. But it gives us direction. It sets our thinking in one way, and it sets our feet going a certain way. And as we walk that path of repentance, we need encouragement. If we're at the point where we are pointed in the right direction, we're not rebelling and stubbornly refusing to listen. We're listening. We need encouragement. And that's why God sent the son of encouragement to Antioch. It says later in chapter 11 that they reached out to the Hellenists, which was a Greek Gentile community and culture, and they turned to the Lord. They repented. And this report came to Jerusalem, and so who did they send? The son of encouragement, Barnabas. Barnabas was named Barnabas because it means son of encouragement, and he came there. And what he did was he encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas was from Cyprus. He was a Levite, a priestly family. He was a Jew, but his particular mission was to encourage the Gentiles. Because it wasn't enough just to say, turn away from all that bad behavior. You know what happens when you tell a person to just stop worrying? Have you ever tried to tell someone who worries a lot to stop worrying? Guess what the next thing they do is? They worry about worrying. The point is, is it's not enough just to turn away from sin. It's too powerful. You need the encouragement to turn toward something to replace that bad behavior with a new behavior, to have somebody giving you direction and telling you where to go, to have accountability, 
to have friendship, to have the son of encouragement by your side so you don't go back, so you don't turn back to Egypt and give up. Barnabas was the son of encouragement, and I would encourage you to have a friend, someone who you can talk to about your sins and about your repentance, someone who you can confess or confide in, someone who you trust, who will encourage you to stay on the path and keep your direction. So, if God were dead tomorrow, would your life be different? When we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it really does change things for us. Now, for us who have grown up at the church, we've been hearing this our whole lives. And many of us here have grown up in the church, so we've been hearing the gospel our whole life, and it's so much easier to take it for granted then. Unlike the Gentiles in the book of Acts, We don't have a dramatic conversion story, many of us, from paganism to the Lord. Now, in some churches, there's more of that. In ours, not so much. We have more of the steady, long-term view. And yet, even if it's not as dramatic as Paul on the way to Damascus, in little ways, the Lord is turning you every day. The Lord is in your mind, he's in your heart, he's in your life. And it might not be super dramatic, but little things matter too. And he's turning you in little ways away from things that be destructive toward things that will bring life. Daily practices, dealing with people, doing your job, being ordinary, being home, being married. These are all places where we need those little repentances every day. And then we will hear the voice of Jesus, the voice which says, come, which cries out in the street, come. And God can use you to stand out in the street and call out for Jesus so more people would come to encourage someone else. And you can go from the Emmaus disciples who are just completely downcast and given up to the church in Acts, which is uplifted, looking forward, struggling through it all together, and encouraging one another with the word. Amen.